Straw Hut Media. So for me, gender dysphoria um, presented many times as this anger and this frustration. And it was this thread that I had throughout my life. And of course, I didn't know it for a lot of that time. Um, but it was this constant feeling of, of being inadequate, of being unfulfilled, um, of always thinking that there was something better to move on to. Um, but again, I, it was not for a long time where I could really put that in terms of gender and gender dysphoria. Um, but when that did start to materialize, then it was a lot, the, a lot of the things that you hear about of actually feeling like I'm in the wrong body, right? Like recognizing things that are a part of me that then made me feel very uncomfortable um, that I didn't necessarily want to acknowledge. Um, you know, I, it's interesting. I remember this moment when I was riding my bike and I was looking down as I was riding just kind of ahead of me and I noticed my leg coming into view and just, you know, this is again, this is just like my experience, but um, it was just like looking at this hairy leg. And I was like, this is not my leg, you know? And again, like it, everybody has different you know, perceptions on, on hair on the body. But for me, like that was just something that, that I, I was like, whoa, like I hadn't felt that before. Um, and then it kind of started to, that was like the beginnings of when it sort of started to snowball and, and really come to the forefront. By now, most people understand, or are at least aware, of the trials and tribulations the transgender community experiences every day. You may have a close friend, or even a relative who is trans, or maybe there's a celebrity you adore who identifies as trans. Perhaps you're part of the trans or gender non-conforming community yourself. But what some people may not realize is that being trans is not new. Documentation of the trans experience can be traced back thousands of years through history and suggests that trans people have been around since the beginning of humankind. You've met a few influential trans and gender non-conforming folks on this show. From actress Jen Richards, to director Sam Fader, to Camp Lost Boys founder Rocco Keiados, and activist and educator Addison Rose Vincent, we have welcomed several amazing trans people on Pride. And today, you'll meet another one, Dr. Jerrica Kirkley, the founder of Plume, a startup for gender-affirming healthcare services. Dr. Kirkley, or Jerrica, knows a lot about the trans community, its history, and modern-day healthcare. In this discussion, we'll explore gender-affirming care from the 19th century to today. We'll cover the terminology used within the trans community to describe identity and healthcare, and review the history of gender dysphoria before introducing you to the life-saving gender-affirming care of today. I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. Trigger warning. This episode of Pride covers numerous terms used to describe one's identity within the queer community. It is in no way an attempt to force any of these terms onto anyone. Identifying as trans doesn't require a medical diagnosis, and the experience is different for everyone. If you're questioning your gender identity, know that you do not have to pursue any of the treatments or procedures detailed in this episode. You are already you. 
I'm Jerrica, Chief Medical Officer and co-founder of Flume, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. Jerrica is a physician who focuses on gender-affirming care, which is... Just providing any type of care, uh, usually specifically referring to healthcare, in an affirming way. So a way that acknowledges somebody's lived experience, that is respectful, um, you know, and that really is it. And that could be uh, blood pressure management, it could be diabetes management, it could be an annual physical, um, it could be gender-affirming hormone therapy, um, but doing it in a way that is really respectful and compassionate. This care is provided as a way to help align one's body with their gender identity. It's not about becoming someone else. It's about aligning your physical body with who you have always been. We are not here, you know, no medical provider, nobody, period, is here to decide if somebody is trans or not, or if somebody is quote-unquote trans enough or not to, uh, to qualify, so to speak, for a, a therapy or a surgery or whatever the case may be. Um, but unfortunately, the way the system has been set up is that it really can feel like that sometimes for a lot of people. And uh, so instead of that, it is actually just affirmation. It's supporting and affirming and being a guide through the process. You know, if somebody is coming to me um, because they know that hormone therapy is right for them. That is for them to know. Before we get too deep into the history of the trans experience, we're first going to walk through the vocabulary that is necessary to understand gender-affirming care, starting with the term cisgender. Usually what we're talking about is when somebody's gender identity, so their known or felt gender, as, as they know it, um, it, aligns with what they were assigned at birth, right? And assigned at birth just basically means, you know, it's that moment is, well, usually before you come out of the womb, uh, you know, in most cases now, but when the baby's born and immediately a practitioner doing the delivery says, okay, this is a male or a female. It just purely based on what they look like from the outside, right? So cisgender just means there's an alignment there. So if you're not cisgender, that means there is some kind of misalignment there that how you identify uh, does not align with what, you know, the medical system told you were when you were born. Um, and so whether that means trans, transgender, non-binary, gender fluid, gender queer, Right, there's lots of identities and communities within that kind of broader non-cis umbrella. The next term is used to describe a specific type of care. One term that's been used for a long time is HRT, which technically stands for hormone replacement therapy. And it comes from really medical management of predominantly cis folks um, who are going through changes later in life that have to do with hormones in their body changing. So things like menopause or testosterone dropping later in life and actually literally replacing those hormones um, to help manage symptoms that occur because of those, uh, those conditions. Um, but in this case, you know, with the trans community, it's not necessarily a replacement. It really is an affirmation. It's, it's kind of, you know, giving something to our bodies that we know is right for us. Um, that hasn't been there. And so to say HRT or hormone replacement therapy is a little bit of a misnomer and that language is starting to change um, in the medical community and outside of the medical community. And so, so we say gender affirming hormone therapy or GAHT as, a, as opposed to HRT, but you'll see both of those. No one can tell you if you're trans or cis. It's up to you to know. But one factor that plays a key role in gender discovery is known as gender dysphoria. This is really a, a term that, uh, that is derived largely from WPATH, uh, the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, who has put together these kind of guidelines and quote unquote diagnostic criteria. 
Now, again, you know, it's um, nobody can like diagnose you as being trans. That's totally for you to know. Um, now, when we talk about gender dysphoria, the reason we make a distinction there is to help guide folks in the process of actually using medical treatment, therapy, surgery, et cetera, to further affirm your gender. Um, so gender dysphoria, I guess at its simplest, is just any distress or impairment which you feel uh, related to incongruence or a difference between how you identify and what you were assigned at birth. So, so that's kind of the most simplest definition. Um, and this distress or impairment or this feeling of negativity or dissonance, you know, it can be experienced in many ways. So a lot of people come to me and they're like, well, I don't know if I have gender dysphoria, you know, and there's probably a reason why they're talking to me, you know, there's gotta be something there. Right. Um, and, and so I just kind of trace it back like that. I mean, can you remember a moment in your life where you just felt like this doesn't feel right? You know, like there's, there's something about this that is not maybe who I'm supposed to be or where I'm supposed to be. Um, and, and usually, you know, when you start to address that kind of just most basic definition, people are like, oh yeah, like I've felt like that for years or I felt like, you know, for, for a long time in some way. The use of FTM or MTF, female to male or male to female, can be used to describe one's journey. But it's a controversial term, and it's been known to stir up debate over its accuracy. You know, I think when, when I think about that, I, I always try to respect the voice that's used to describe their self, right? So in this case, you know, this is kind of how this surgery was termed for this person. And, and so using that, if somebody comes to me and says, like, I you know, identify as, as FTM, um, you know, then I'll acknowledge that. And uh, it will respect that as their gender identity. And I'm not going to like force something on them that, you know, just because that maybe it doesn't feel right to me, um, but, but it does feel right to them. So, so there are a lot of different ways that, that folks identify and, and talk about it. And, um, and, it, and it's a perpetual debate because the question is like, well, then what do you say? What do you say publicly? You know, how do you, what, what do you put on your forms? What do you put on your website? Um, and I think, um, keeping it, I guess, as open and broad as possible. And just not, again, not putting my kind of opinions or what I think is, because I don't think anything is correct, right? Because it's just all up to the individual. Trans people have been around as long as people have been around. Um, you know, there, there's no question about that. While modern medicine has improved exponentially in recent decades, including in gender-affirming healthcare, the history of these practices dates back to the early 19th century. And it is really interesting that actually from a medical context, you know, things like surgeries, um, you know, vaginoplasties, uh, stuff that we consider today pretty cutting edge and, you know, kind of very, very modern medicine, actually has been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And we have evidence of this in communities um, with uh, Australian Aboriginal communities, um, looking back through ancient Sumerian society, references in literature, um, indigenous folks all over the world um, have had varied gender systems, right? I, mean, we're, I think a lot of us are accustomed to this binary gender system, but you know, there's a lot of communities who've had upwards of five, six plus genders. And so actually procedures, medical procedures being done for thousands of years. In the year 1919, the Institute for Sexual Research was founded by Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld. 
Dr. Hirschfield was uh, a gay cis man back in, in the early 1900s um, who really had a compassion for trans folks, you know, had a lot of uh, close friends who were trans and, and recognized that, you know, similar to a lot of communities was one that definitely experienced disparities and, and especially at that time, lack of access to appropriate healthcare um, to meet their needs. And so he started to look into that. Um, and first this was with surgery. So looking at kind of surgical techniques to help um, affirm one's gender if that's desired. Um, but it was in the 1930s that hormones were first synthesized. So that was the first time where you actually could give somebody hormones. And so things like testosterone, progesterone, uh, or estrogen. Um, and so it was after the 1930s where it really started to get more momentum with gender affirming care as a field. Um, in 1930 was the, the first modern orchiectomy um, and uh, also a vaginoplasty, so which are all surgeries, gender affirming care surgeries that we do today. So, you know, we think of that as cutting edge, but in fact, it's been going on for almost 100 years. And 1979 was the establishment of the Harry Benjamin International Gender Dysphoria Association, which is a mouthful, which actually is what is now WPATH, so the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. Um, you know, these are standards of care that the medical community, the behavioral health community has been using for a long time. Uh, the most recent standards, which came out in 2011, um, but first started in 1979. And, and then in 1998 was the first published report of uh, what we call our gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists. And these are the puberty blockers that we use in youth um, to help you know, block puberty, uh, to give youth the space to you know, go through that gender processing um, and not go through an undesired puberty to be able to start hormones later if, um, if that is ultimately what is desired. Um, but that was 1998, so you know, over 20 years ago now. So, so none of this is, is new um, you know, by any means. And, um, and, you know, and then we've had various guidelines of care come out since that time. Um, so UCSF, uh, their Center of Excellence for Transgender Care uh, has published guidelines as recently as 2016, um, which kind of help provide guidance in terms of hormone prescribing, lab checking, you know, providing those safety guidelines. Um, the Endocrine Society also has had a, a guideline published as recently as, I believe, 2017. Uh, as I mentioned, WPATH's last standard was 2011. Which brings us to the present day, where these procedures have continued to evolve and advance. But even 100 years later, those who seek guidance and care are still facing difficulties on their road to affirmation, like when trying to get a prescription for hormone therapy. An endocrinologist is a specialist, which you know works with all different hormones in the body. Um, but it can be hard to get into. It can be expensive, um, and there's just hasn't historically not as many people doing that. But what we started to see, especially over the last probably 20 to 30 years, is gender affirming care moving into a, a what we call a primary care space. So clinics that are more accessible to everybody. Um, and, uh, and it's still a challenge uh, because gender affirming care, gender affirming hormone therapy and, and, you know, and things like surgeries are not a standard part of medical curricula, whether that be medical schools, nurse practitioner training, PA training, or physician assistants. Um, and, and so you have a, a big workforce of primary care providers who just don't necessarily have that training. And a lot of people have to get it on the job or be in an environment where, where that's done. And so, so that's something that I think we're all in this community trying to change um, and, and make sure that actually is part of education so that we can build that primary care workforce to attend to those needs as well. 
Speaking of education, it's important for people to realize that this journey looks different for everyone. For some people, when they're younger, they might start to have these notions of experiencing that 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 difference, right? That kind of um, distress that is noticed when your gender identity is different from what you were assigned at birth. Um, but for others, because of various reasons, uh, you know, repression and social communities and families, um, those kind of real realizations uh, might not come till later in life. And so, you know, I think that the timeline is different for everybody. There's no one way <laughs> to, to be trans or, or to experience that journey. Um, that's absolutely true. And, you know, hormone therapy, for example, not everybody wants or desires hormone therapy. Now, the overwhelming majority based on surveys and population data that we have do. So, you know, upwards of um, 80%, you know, desire to be on hormone therapy. Um, but that still, of course, leaves a lot of folks who, who that's not uh, necessarily needed. Um, same thing with surgery, right? Surgery can be really important for some folks, but not for everybody um, in terms of gender affirmation surgery. Uh, so it does look differently. And so I think there's uh, a big part of gender affirming care is, is not making assumptions about folks, right? So regardless of how somebody looks or talks or sounds, um, or what they're wearing, like, you know, we can't assume anybody's gender, of course. Um, we can't assume anybody's goals within the realm of gender affirming care. When we come back, you'll hear Jerrica's personal story of affirmation and learn how she aligned her personal life with her career. Welcome back. Earlier, we spoke to Dr. Jerrica Kirkley on the history of transness and gender identity. Now, she takes us through her own journey of affirmation and how it led to the creation of Plume, a gender-affirming care service. I grew up in the South. I grew up in North Carolina and, um, you know, pretty conservative household, Southern Baptist, um, you know, going, going to church every week until I went to college and, and I decided I was not going to do that anymore. Um, uh, yeah. And so for, you know, a lot of this, you kind of learn in retrospection, you know, um, in terms of just really acknowledging the repression that was occurring. You know, for me, I came out uh, like, you know, I guess like relatively later, um, I came out in my mid thirties. Um, and you know, it was that in that time frame where it was like really kind of rising to my consciousness. And for me, it was always, you know, I knew something was different. There was never this palpable, um, necessarily like when I was younger, like, oh, like, like I'm a girl and I have to be a girl and I'm in the wrong body and all this kind of stuff, you know? Now I definitely felt very strongly that way, um, uh, as I came out, but, um, but growing up, that's not necessarily, you know, that wasn't the, the case for me. And I think because I was probably starting to get notions of that. And as I look back, I can see moments in my life where that was starting to shine through. And then I quickly put it down. You know, because I was like, well, this is, this is not right. It's not how it's supposed to be, um, you know, and, and I want to make sure I kind of comply with these, you know, these gender roles and norms that, that I was seeing around me. As Jerrica grew up, most of her days were occupied with studying. She didn't have the time to focus on herself. First college and medical school, and then her residency. And those were years of just like, <laughs> you know, your, your brain is so occupied with stuff uh, tons of knowledge and information 
that for me, I mean, I didn't really even have like the time or space for my brain to breathe. And I finally finished residency. And I think that is where I could start to process, you know, and my brain did start to breathe. And I kind of had a routine that was somewhat normal and not staying up, you know, random days and nights um, working in hospitals. And so, um, and I think that's where it started to set in. Finally, she found the time to begin reflecting on her own experiences and start on a path toward self-discovery. I kind of had this aha moment. It was just very clear. I was like, I'm not cisgender, you know? And, and that was very clear to me. You know, I wasn't, you know, totally sure at that point, like where I was going to land on this journey, but that was very clear. Even after her first moment of realization, nothing changed overnight. She was still a long way from gender affirmation. And then it evolved into, you know, that yes, like I actually do have this feminine identity, you know, I identify as a woman. And, and at that point when I just like really acknowledged that to myself is when it just came rushing in. You know, I think it's the best way to describe this. And I've talked to a lot of people um, who are trans now uh, or who are not cis, right? And and in and, and, the well, it's, it's different for everybody. I hear that a lot. It's like you get to this moment and it just rushes in and it's just kind of like sort of devours like everything in front of you in terms of your thinking and this just kind of has to happen. From there, she made the life-changing decision to pursue hormone therapy. Both those moments, I think one acknowledging to myself, acknowledging to others, you know, starting the kind of more medical transition, if you will, um, were just massive moments in my life. Another milestone for Jerrica was coming out to her friends, family, and coworkers. I was, you know, a physician working at a busy primary care practice, 13 clinics wide, thousands of employees. And I talked to my medical director at the time and I was like, how do I do, how do I even like tell people this? Um, and he was incredibly supportive, uh, really great individual. Um, but he's like, you know, let's just send an email to everybody. And I was like, okay. You know, and so we sent this mass email to literally the entire company, you know, again, 13 clinics wide throughout Colorado. Um, and, and I just wrote this email and I was like, this is who I am. And, you know, this is how, what I go by now. This is my name, my pronouns. Um, and I was super nervous and I like, I had Wednesdays off as an administrative day. So I sent it, I think Tuesday night. And then I just like closed the computer for a day and I was like, I'm not looking. Um, but I opened it up Thursday morning and it was incredible. I mean, it was just like, uh, the support from everybody in the organization, people I'd never even met before, um, you know, just like giving me emails of support and encouragement. And it, and it was truly incredible. Um, and a moment that was very <laughs> anxiety provoking. But to, that was the moment where I was like, okay, I'm going to change my expression now. You know, it's like I sent the email and not that anybody has to do that, but for me, it felt poignant. Jerrica had been buying her clothes from the men's department for 30 years. The night before she was scheduled to return to work, she decided to take herself shopping. So like I went to Target, I was like freaking out, I'm, like browsing through clothes um, and, and trying to try them on. <laughs> um, and you know, and I picked up a couple, a couple things and wore that to work the next day. And so that was my like very first moment of expressing in a way that, you know, I felt was uh, that my gender represented. Um, and it was exhilarating, I have to say. I mean, it's funny, like I'd never probably, you know, 
Um, some of those outfits are, are <laughs> pretty, pretty horrible. Um, but in the moment, it was, um, yeah, it was incredible. Have you ever felt lost, like something was missing and you just couldn't figure out what? That's how Jerrica felt before her gender discovery. But after she came out and began her affirmation process, layers upon layers of anger and frustration just melted away. I mean, it's just like incredible. You know, I, I can think back to times before that where, you know, I, I was did carry a lot of anger and I carried a lot of frustration. And I had this notion that like, the grass is always greener and things are going to get better if I just get this job or if I just do this thing or have this position or live in this place. And nothing was ever good enough and I never knew why, even though I knew that things, you know, relatively speaking, were pretty good for me. Um, but but then it, it all clicked in that moment. Um, and then, you know, I think was able to just live in the moment more and appreciate certainly who I am, uh, you know, love myself more, um, but also just appreciate my circumstances and um be be more thankful more grateful um and again like not carry that anger and frustration that just kind of plagued me my entire life so um so yeah it's it's been definitely a long journey and it continues you know it's the thing it never never ends it's ever evolving for jerica it's not just about her own journey she also dedicates her life to helping the trans community with plume plume is a a healthcare service for trans folks is a gender affirming care service. Last February, Jerrica was talking with an old medical school friend, Dr. Matthew Wetzler, on ways to improve access to care. Matthew had been working with patients online through digital health companies, and Jerrica had been devoting her time to gender affirming care and building clinics. But what would happen if they united and combined their efforts? He was just like, well, what about, you know, what if you did gender affirming care in this kind of exclusively virtual space, which is something that I'd been kicking around as an extension of a lot of the, the care that I was doing in brick and mortar facilities. But to, you know, I think in a post as dawn on us, this was so radical um, and also needed to just like completely upend the system, make it 100% virtual um, and, and do it in a way that is just so affirming, you know, and that of course is, built by trans people for trans people. Without raising capital, they used the money and free time they had and started Plume. It may sound simple, but how does it work? Um, you come to our website, um, basically click a link that says get started and we'll get some initial information, give you a download link to our secure HIPAA compliant app, um, start going through that onboarding process. And so this is one of the differences where typically you have to walk into a clinic, sit in a waiting room, fill out a bunch of forms, you know, and then four hours later, three hours later, you, you leave the clinic, right? And, and, and we do know that like upwards of a third of trans people are actively discriminated against in a healthcare facility, right? So, so all those three hours can be actually pretty painful. Um, but you can do this anywhere you are. You can do this sitting on your couch. You can do this at a, a break at work. Um, you know, read the consent forms, read the information about the medications, um, acknowledge those, sign them. Um, schedule your appointment all in about 20 to 30 minutes. You know, in most cases, folks are seen within a few days to a week. Um, and then we do a one-on-one -on -one video visit to start care and send prescriptions to the pharmacy the same day. Um, and then we do follow up with lab monitoring every three months. And so we use Quest facilities to do that. Um, they're, they're scattered around, around the U.S. And so certainly 
um, can be in more rural areas, uh, maybe not quite the density of those patient service centers, but they're pretty widely distributed. Um, and um, so really that's kind of like the one thing, picking up the medications and getting the labs done where you have to leave your house. Um, but in terms of communicating with your care team, you know, we're available 24 seven. So during business hours, if you send a text, you get a response and from your care coordinators, if it requires the attention of your medical provider, they can respond. Um, we continue that care going forward. So again, we establish that relationship and, and continue it and provide care and support um, as you go along. It is a completely virtual service and can be done from the comfort of your own home. With the COVID-19 pandemic keeping most of us stuck inside, services like Plume are even more important. Knowing that there are, you know, some some contexts where um, where in-person care is is necessary, but this is one where we really can do a whole lot in a in a virtual environment. Um, we're looking at how do we better support folks emotionally? You know, how do we support folks um, more in depth with these legal processes that we have to jump through? Um, you know, looking at different uh, different medical care, like prescribing options that are really inherent in that, that gender affirming care journey. We started this episode with a reflection of Jerrica's encounter with gender dysphoria. It's intensely stressful, and if you're experiencing it right now, know that you're not alone and that the light at the end of the tunnel may be closer than you think. Despite the severity and challenges associated with dysphoria, it seems only right to end this episode with Jerrica's experiences of true gender euphoria. So I think feeling very comfortable with your gender acknowledging that. So for me was... Um, just a letting go of, of a lot of that, right? Uh, so feeling that anger and that frustration um, literally melt away, you know, and and almost in like this kind of consolidated moment where it's like, this is who I am. Like, this is who I am going to present myself as to the world. Um, and yeah, it just totally, totally life altering, I think, um, certainly much more feeling of confidence um, and which is a complicated one because um, there can be a lot of intimidation I think as at least for me and I know a lot of other people have felt this as you as you transition you change your appearance you change your expression you're going out in the world right and then it's kind of like you feel like all these eyes are on you and, and there's something that can be intimidating and daunting about that but at the same time I think very you know, yeah, like it instills confidence because you know this is who you are and you're going out there and you're being who you are regardless. Um, and of course, there's a lot of courage that comes with that too. And um, so, yeah, I, I feel uh, liberated, I think, from a lot of things that were holding me back. Um, I feel empowered, I feel confident. And, um, you know, and I, I think truly, uh, like, feel beautiful and loved in a way that I definitely did not acknowledge to myself ever, you know, prior to coming out. So um, that is gender euphoria to me. So you feel happier? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, no question, definitely happier.
Thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you by Plume. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Pride. You can follow me, at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Levi Chambers, Caitlin McDaniel, Maggie Bowles, and Ryan Tillotson. Edited by Sebastian Alcala. To learn more about Plume, go to getplume.com. See, we were missing that element of the affirmation process, the trip to Target. I'd love to have that. It's like, you know, we provide legal support, we provide medical support, we provide linkage to surgery and a $500 gift card to Target (laughs) to use whenever you want to. To buy all (laughs) the shit you want.